0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Swisspreneur. Today, we're going to have a chat with Daniel Gutenberg, probably the most successful angel investor on the planet. He already invested in 12 unicorns, and there are still more to come. He will talk about how and why he became an investor, and will also tell us his secrets, how he finds unicorns. Additionally, he also compares the startup ecosystems of Israel and Switzerland. Let's have a chat with Daniel. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. So Daniel, thank you very much for taking the time and welcome to this episode of Swisspreneur. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I would like to start back um, in uh, 1987, when you first moved uh, to Hawaii to work as a serving teacher there, you said in an interview that you arrived there and you saw the big houses and then uh, realized that these big houses there belong to the local entrepreneurs, or at least most of them. What feelings did that sort of trigger in you or what desires did that trigger in you when you first realized that probably the most wealthy people in Hawaii are entrepreneurs?
1: Well of course not only in Hawaii I mean the I mean I think the most wealthy people of the US uh, are having houses in Hawaii uh, if it's not the Hamptons uh, Hawaii's is, is uh, and also f- the most wealthy people of Japan and uh, end of 70s uh, end of 80s a lot of Japanese were very rich uh, so uh, really nice houses I was doing 5 dollars an hour and of course aspiring to one day be able to uh, live in a house like this, um, I, I think that's quite inspirational, yes.
0: What was this inspiration to, you know, to, to get on the way from $5 an hour to, to be able to afford these big houses? What was the the pure motivation there? Was it sort of uh, an achievement that you wanted to have for yourself, or was it...
1: Uh, well, uh... I mean, I just liked it, and, and I looked at it, but it wasn't like I couldn't sleep because I really need to, uh, you know, pursue this goal of having a big house. Sure. It wasn't my first uh, um, my first goal. If, if, it, if it would have been my first goal, I probably would have not continued as a windsurf instructor, mm-hmm. a job I really
0: loved and uh, and and did for fun more than for earning money. Absolutely. Then, four years later, in nineteen ninety one, you moved back to Switzerland where you also started your first company when you were just 25 years old. You were a reseller of US softened hardware in Switzerland. How did you start that company at such a young age and what were probably also the challenges that you faced then?
1: Yeah, so when I moved from Hawaii to Switzerland, I got hired uh, by a Swiss company that was a distributor um, of EverX Computers, uh, a Californian company. Uh, So I worked there for a year and uh, the company merged with another company and my job was made redundant, a um, very nice expression. Uh, so I was out of a job and um, I was expecting people to offer me a job, as always happened before, mm-hmm. but nobody did. So uh, instead, I uh, just started my company.
0: So sort of out of your own need, you just said, hey, if nobody's hiring me, I should start my own company. Exactly.
1: And I didn't, you know, make a big fuss out of it. I just started working here a little bit, there a little bit. And then it just happened to be a company at the end. It, it wasn't really very prepared.
0: You also were very well known for, you know, checking out exhibitions and looking for products that you understood in 30 seconds or less. Was that also a part of your successful business start back then?
1: Oh, absolutely, I uh, I was looking for new products to uh, to distribute, uh, and uh, and to be efficient, I would walk very fast through the exhibitions, uh, so it wouldn't leave me more than thirty seconds to understand the booths I was looking at, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought it uh, it only makes sense to distribute something that people can understand very fast, uh, because that will make it easier to create a demand, absolutely. and. Um, and so I would walk through, um, uh, in a very systematic way, through all the booths and, uh, and would only stop where I could understand right away uh, what they do and, and then maybe inquire further if they need a distribution ship in Europe.
0: How did you prepare for these exhibitions? I think you also had to do a certain homework. Absolutely. I, uh, um,
1: first of all, I, I, I mean, I knew the market Uh, I knew my, uh, you know, what I want, what other people want to have uh, as new technologies. And uh, I would look at, uh, I get the books from the exhibitors, uh, the exhibitors directory uh, beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then I would uh, go through the book and research about all the companies and uh, all the, uh, often you have also uh, different halls with different teams. I would research a lot uh, beforehand, before going uh and and uh, uh so i would you know be in
0: the know when i'm there then three years later after you started your own company gutenberg communications one of your major suppliers went bankrupt and there you was, walk us through yeah. that so there was not one of them that was the major supplier
1: of um, uh, of my main product which is a portable hard disk um i was importing it from the us and uh, doing a great business i Basically, was like a subsidiary of the company in, in Switzerland. I uh, was distributing it to uh, dealers. I was even sub-distributing it to other distributors and uh, was doing the support and the marketing, uh, printing my own material in German and in French and in Italian and uh, hiring people to, to do the sales, to do the support and everything. And one day, uh, and, and numbers were going, you know, Five or 10% months over months upwards. Um, uh, really good. Very startup like growth. Yeah. yeah, Very. Yeah. It was a startup. <laughs> uh, and everybody needed more hard disk space. Windows 3.0 came on, on the market. Everybody needed more space. And, um, and so one day, um, the guy told me he couldn't deliver anymore because he was bankrupt. And I just couldn't believe it because, uh, it was such a good product and such a good margin. Um So I was very surprised, uh, in my head I thought I was doing one or two or three percent of his worldwide turnover. So next day I traveled to the US, met the guy for the first time, he uh, picked me up at the airport and he said, hey, Daniel I'm so sorry but uh, uh, you were like 80 percent of my turnover and just wasn't enough to uh, keep up uh, the factory and the costs for the research and development. So uh, I realized that I really made a big mistake by not knowing uh, this guy's or this company's numbers. Mm-hmm. And um, and that made me decide that for every future uh, company or dealership or um, product I would distribute, I need to have at least a share of the company. So at least at the end of the year or maybe several times a year, I would get the numbers and uh, and be aware if, it's, if the company is sustainable or not. So uh, the next three companies I dealt with um, all become, became multi-billion dollar uh, startups. Uh, there was Netscape, Netscreen and Intershop. And that's pretty crazy if you think about that, how that actually turned out. That was yeah, uh, yeah, a big uh, coincidence really that all three of those became such big strong companies. Um, and, uh, and particularly Netscape helped me really to, make, uh, to become the go-to place for every software vendor that wanted to have
0: distribution in Europe. I think it's, it's a pretty difficult question to answer, but from your perspective, what percentage would you say is, is like timing or coincidence luck, and what percentage is also skill, or is that very interconnected and has to come together at the right time?
1: So, well, the part about connections, uh, I would not agree because I didn't have any connections. Um, the part about luck is to be, you know, in the Internet area when the Internet starts is, of course, huge luck. Uh, the same thing uh, would not have happened in any other industry like, you know, really the Internet took off like crazy. Um, and the third part skills um, is because I read a lot and I knew what's going on in the market. And when I read about Netscape, I told my assistant to uh, write them a letter and to tell them that I would like to represent them in Europe. And they were so small then they didn't really care. they was like, well, if we can do some more turnover in Europe, why not? Just, you know, take care of it. Just don't bother us too much. Uh, so it was really easy to get the the relationship and the distributorship. I, I guess I was pretty much the only guy who even wanted it at the time.
0: You also mentioned the companies that you got in touch with and therefore also you met very now famous people like uh, Mark Andreessen, and Larry Ellison, but also Jeff Bezos, for example. How did these meetings happen and what did you take away from, from these people? Was it Did it feel any special to meet these people who are very famous nowadays? <laughs> yes, I think those people already at that time were kind of famous
1: in the US, not that much in Europe. Um, it was very, very special for me to meet them. I was in my mid-20s and, and they were a bit older, most of them. Uh, I met them through an organization called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, without this organization, it would have never been possible to meet them. Maybe you can quickly explain the, what this so, organization so does. The, the, yeah, the Young Presidents Organization is a, is a global uni- uh, organization of, um, of, of presidents or CEOs of companies. Uh, the companies have to have a certain size, so um, before that you cannot apply to become a YPO. Mm-hmm. And the tagline of YPO is Better Presidents Through Education and Idea Exchange, and they organized what they call a university, which is a one week meeting, uh, different places of the world with different, uh, agendas and different, uh, topics. And, and they did in 96 organize, uh, a university in San Francisco. And the topic was IT. And I attended that university and that's where I met all of those
0: people. And, uh, how, how did that feel? You know, you said they were already pretty, pretty famous back then. What did he take away from these meetings? Did they inspire you in a certain way?
1: Absolutely. I met there uh, not only those those names that you just mentioned, I also met a guy that really influenced me um, john durer he's one of the leading venture capitalists in the in the silicon valley the, but a name that not many people know he's behind um, some of the companies like sun Microsystem and uh, 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 and and he had a very interesting uh Lecture, a very bright guy. He impressed me a lot, and uh, and I just had a, a a real big advantage um in comparison with my peers in Europe uh, by knowing what those guys were thinking and which direction those guys were running, uh, which
0: here in Europe nobody had realized yet. Do you see? I think this is a very, a very interesting topic. Do you see something like that happen nowadays, where? somebody thinks further ahead or sees trends coming up that we maybe in Europe don't see coming yet uh,
1: I think there is places uh, that have uh, that are further advanced than others um, uh, I would say that uh, um, uh, Israel is one of those places uh, that has in, in many Especially cyber security, uh, but also in autonomous cars and stuff like this, uh, an edge and, and, the ecosystem that has, uh, that is years ahead of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also argue that Switzerland has that for, um, blockchain uh, projects. Uh, we have now more than 600 blockchain related companies that came to Switzerland or started in Switzerland. Um, so we have uh, quite of a hub here. So there are certain hubs like this. But of course, today, uh, information is, is is circulating much faster, much f- more freely than it was in the 90s. So I think the, the effect is not as strong anymore.
0: Then now going back to your company, Gutenberg Communications, in 2000, you sold your company. Also with a pretty good timing um, before the dot-com bubble uh, hit the market. What made you sell the company? Well, I didn't sell the company. I really didn't sell the company. I didn't want to sell the company.
1: Um, I got a phone call from a headhunter. Actually, a letter from a headhunter that said that uh, uh, that he works for a company that would like to have me as a CEO. And I threw the letter in the garbage. Um, <laughs> and he called me back and back and back. And uh, my assistants one day said, you know, I can't get rid of this guy. <laughs> Persistence so, <laughs> is key. <clear. laughs> <laughs> he was very persistent. And, uh, so, uh, so I took the phone for the first time and, uh, he told me that he would like, uh, to, he's really mandate, mandated to get a CEO. And, uh, and that, uh, and I told him, yes, but I'm not free. I have my own company. He's even got my name. So I, I, I you know, there's no way I can leave. And then he said, yeah, but the guy would also buy a company just to get the right CEO. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, <laughs> but it's a huge multinational uh, company. I totally exaggerated. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, but still, um, he would still be interested. So I told him on the first phone call, I told him, well, if it's like this, this is the price. Uh, you go back to your uh, boss and uh, tell him the price. And if he still wants to meet me, uh, he can meet me. Uh, and so months later, I met him uh and um i think three weeks after that he wired the money and i told him he can do the due diligence afterwards first wire the money <laughs> and he did
0: that it was pretty crazy that's crazy and, and really you know like not how these things usually work absolutely so to sum that up you were in a pretty good position where you said you have a well-running business your name is on the door basically and you have no need to actually sell it so you just named the price where you thought hey Let's exactly. go
1: crazy. Exactly. I just named the price that I thought was unreasonable. There was no other, I never offered the company to anybody since so there was no other bidders or anything like this. Uh, it was just this one company and, and they ended up buying. Cool. And then what, what did you do afterwards, after the deal closed? So after the deal closed, I became CEO of that operation uh, and um, I worked for a while. Unfortunately, the, the boss, the guy who bought uh, me, it was a public company, but um, very run, very uh, around one guy and this guy died uh, maybe a year later. Um, so the whole, the whole thing was completely different after he died. And, and I decided to leave the company.
0: And was that also the time when you started to focus more on being an investor?
1: Oh, not at all. I focused on doing some vacation, which I did for like three years.
0: (laughs) Right when the dot com bubble hit, right?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, the dot com bubble went, you know, broke about three months after I sold. So I sold in March and in the summer, everything went. Talking absurd. about good timing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was good timing, but it wasn't really my timing. <laughs> so this was, was more lucky. a coincidence because that you was, had an opportunity. I was absolutely lucky. Um, I, I really had no idea that that was coming. Um, I just knew that the price I was asking for the company is more than fair. Then after vacation? And after vacation, I, uh, I started to work as a venture capitalist for Venture Incubator. It's a Swiss venture capital company that has 10 investors, large uh, Swiss companies. Nestle, Novartis, Credit Suisse. Um, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to be part of the team. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I'd love to do that. I just can't do it 100% of the time uh, because I have global interests and, and this company only invests in Swiss companies. So in 2003, that was, I started for Venture Incubator. And, uh, and since I was then a venture capitalist already, I also continued to do my um,
0: business angel deals. How did these two activities support or even positively influence each other?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, many venture capital funds um, you know, prohibit their investment managers to have private investments. Uh, for me, it was a condition. And, and I think it's, uh, it's all in the advantage of the, uh, of the fund. If the investment manager has skin in the game, um, and is invested himself, he will, you know, take better care of the investments and, and maybe also better care to find good investments. So, uh, for us, that has worked. Um, I mean, you would have to ask the LPs, but I think it has worked very well. Um, there is, you know, potential for conflict of interests. Um, but I think if you're uh, very transparent and open, uh, which has always been, you know, I always try to be as transparent as, uh, and as open about what I do as possible. Um, the advantages are much higher than the disadvantages. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I try to do everything in parallel with the fund, Uh, I try to offer everything to the fund um, before I do it. Uh, uh, Stuff
0: like this, which is, um, you know, common sense. What actually made you make that decision to come out of vacation? Because probably after you sold your company, you could have very well also just, you know, relaxed on the beach a bit longer if you wanted to. That was
1: the initial idea that I was done with working forever. (laughs) But after three years, I got really bored. I uh, I really had, um, you know, troubles motivating myself out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would show up late for lunch meetings because I needed to take a shower first. And I realized that I had nothing interesting to uh, tell anymore to anybody. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah, it really was boredom that made me go back to business.
0: So this is sort of, I think this is a very interesting statement. So you had quite a, a lot of money that you made from your company sale but there was something else missing to have a fulfilled life and that was sort of a meaning or interesting things to do or to talk about.
1: Absolutely money alone doesn't make a fulfilled life.
0: (laughs) Talking about money um, one of your uh, first investments was Mobileye which became a huge success and was sold to Intel for 15 billion dollars. I don't know if you are able to answer this question or willing to answer this question but as an early stage investor, you have been in such a case. What is like the financial result for you as an investor in, in such a huge success case? Um, well, it was a positive result. That much I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I, um,
1: it was a positive result. I was a small shareholder in the beginning mm-hmm. and I became smaller on the way as hundreds of millions of dollars uh, came into the company. From other investors uh, I I would get diluted on the way Uh, but I still ended up uh, with having a
0: a good part of it and a very nice exit. And that's also I think uh, you know nice to see if one of your bets actually pays out right? Absolutely absolutely and luckily not the only one. (laughs) Uh, You have uh, 13 unicorns in your portfolio nowadays I think. Exactly. Probably the number is still increasing.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I found 13 unicorns in 20 years of investment. I don't have them all in my portfolio anymore, like, um, like, mobilize out of the
0: portfolio since sure. I sold it. So, Or let's say you touched 13 unicorns with your portfolio in the lifetime of it. Exactly. So, yeah. You also said in an interview that your goal is to find unicorns when they are still below 10 employees which is an incredibly hard thing to do, but you've proven it over and over again that you can successfully do that. What are you looking for and what makes a company with below 10 employees a unicorn? <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
1: that, that, I don't think we have time to really explain all of that here. Um, there are certain things that you learn over time and there are certain things that uh, are obvious and there is a third part of criteria that is totally, uh, unobvious or, uh, the opposite of obvious, um, uh, how to, how to find, uh, at the end of the day, what I, what I'm looking for is unicorn CEOs or, you know, capable CEOs that, that can bring a company to a unicorn status. Um, one of the funnest, uh, and, and, and uh, little criterias that I can, uh, give to this uh, to this video is um, uh, I always uh, ask the experts in the field before I make an investment in let's say life sciences or deep technology or mm-hmm. car or uh, I don't know, cybersecurity security um, and uh, if, if the experts uh, have a strong opinion against it uh, or whatever I mean, what I say is I listen to the experts and then I do the exact opposite because uh, um, if you want to find a unicorn, it's clear that this person has to do something completely different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. You can't make uh, such a big uh, jump in front of everybody else if you think the same. You really have to think opposite. So if you think about it, uh, at uh, at the time where Nokia was the world market leader in phones, uh, they would say, yes, those guys in uh, Cupertino, Apple, they know how to do laptops and PCs, but they have no clue about the phone business. That's, you know, where we are strong and we have hundreds of people in research and development and uh, uh, and they have no chance to, you know, we tried everything that there is to try. And, of course, the iPhone came and Nokia is nowhere anymore. Mm-hmm. And the same, you know, happens always uh, in, in this kind of companies. Eh? Tesla comes with electric cars and everybody tells me, you know, nobody wants electric cars. It's uh, uh, We only do that for tax reasons, but uh, nobody really wants electric cars. And, and, and they're completely wrong because it's not electric. But he found a little secret that people want digital cars. And, and digital is not the same as electric and, 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 and people have a hard time especially in in, in the uh, automotive industry to understand what is the difference between digital and, and, and electric so uh, this happens all the time again and and if you see somebody from the industry it's, it's' it's pretty clear that they think they the industry experts think that there can't be somebody coming with uh much, you know, 10 times or 100 times better idea, because as I would have seen it, I've been in the industry for so long. But actually, that's how
0: unicorns are born. Um, but I guess after you found something that you disagree with the experts or that they say you shouldn't do, your job is not done there. Because once you have identified to do the exact opposite, you still have to distinguish between the cases that have the potential to become a unicorn and those who are just not going anywhere. So first of all, it's not not my ideas. It's never my ideas. I just you know look at the ideas
1: of others and then I try to judge if if they are good or not. Mm-hmm. I don't develop my own ideas, which unfortunately I'm not capable of. So um, so I see uh, those entrepreneurs coming up with these ideas, and then I you know have to judge if it's possible or impossible. And if it is possible, uh, if it makes sense or no sense, and uh, if it makes sense, if there is a market for it or not. And and, and pretty much, if I can answer those three questions, uh, then I will look around if, if, if it's really the only ones that have this idea.
0: You also mentioned the importance of the CEO, uh, a unicorn CEO or a CEO capable of bringing a company to unicorn status. Yeah. What are the, the traits, the characteristics of such a good CEO?
1: So it's somebody that uh, really lives for his idea that uh, eats, sleeps, and drinks the the idea he's talking about that uh, has skin in the game because he has to you know have um, success um, be it because he's uh, driven by his product or by proving the world around him that he can have the success, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody that is super efficient, somebody that can create um, Distorted reality, Uh, I think Isaacson talked about distorted reality fields that uh, Steve Jobs has built around him. Uh, And and the same is true for all uh, unicorn CEOs. They are able to to project the vision in a way that everybody around them sees it as reality. Mm -hmm. Um, But in reality, it's not reality. It's a vision. So it's a distorted reality. But if you are able to project that, you know, to your employees, to your partners, to your customers,
0: then uh, you create something very powerful. You said you have uh, to eat, sleep and drink the idea sort of 24-7. Uh, are you looking for more younger founders? Because, you know, if people are a bit older, they also tend to have a family and might not be able To have the same time investment and commitment. Absolutely. So
1: yeah, very typically, my founders are very young. Mm -hmm. Um, The exception to that is the older I get, also the older my (laughs) (laughs) my founders get, and many of those I have backed, you know, already two times or three times before, and I back them again because I know how they
0: uh, how they learned and how they act. Did they have to succeed? Before you backed them again, or have you also backed uh, people or founders who have not, not succeeded? I also have backed people who have not succeeded.
1: I even have backed people where I said, it's not going to work, but next time around, I really would
0: like to be your backer. <laughs> what sort of what specialty made you say that? What made you let you do that conclusion to, with that person? Yeah,
1: the other... The other, you know, hundred criterias that okay. I, uh, that I use. So, uh, people have to have some, um, you know, some kind of a charisma, some kind of a charm, but also have to be super efficient with what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be super efficient in the use of technology. Uh, they have to be good communicators, good, uh, analysts, uh, structured thinking, uh, good technologists. So there, there's a lot of criterias. And, and if I see that, you know, somebody is having all of
0: this together, then I see some potential. You also mentioned skin in the game. Does that mean that the founder has to invest money personally into the startup? Absolutely. Oh,
1: okay. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be money. If he doesn't have money, it can be time or sweat equity or whatever. But uh, he has to... It, 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 I never invest
0: in... Uh, somebody that does it just as a hobby. That's probably set up for failure anyway, most, in the, of, most of the cases. Yeah, very often. I also read a very interesting story about a very interesting case that you did not invest in. Uh, you were in Silicon Valley uh, with a Swiss delegation. And there was, uh, I think it was the founder or the CEO of a pretty famous company nowadays that pitched you on a bus ride.
1: Yeah. So the story started early. The story, uh, started in Switzerland, uh, about, you know, three weeks before we go to the Silicon Valley with a whole group of investors out of Switzerland. Um, I see this app, um, and I read about this app and I download this app and I, you know, try this app and I absolutely loved it and knew from the first second that's going to be a huge success. So I called up the organizers of the trip and said, hey, there's one more startup we need to look at uh, collectively as investors. And they told me it's not possible because we are fully booked. Um, Nobody else can present. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. This one is really special. We have to see this one. (laughs) And uh, and they uh, said, no, it's not possible. And then I um, realized that from one venue to the next we were taking a bus and I told them, well, he could present in the bus. So <laughs> they couldn't really say no, so I invited him to present in the bus and, uh, and I tried it as well. Uh, there was only two uh, cars in San Francisco at the time, mm-hmm. two Ubers and this app and the founder of Uber presented in the bus Uh, to us. uh, And uh, at the end of the day, we forgot to
0: invest. (laughs) I think uh, Florian Schweitzer mentioned that there was no proper follow-up happening afterwards. Exactly. And so you sort of didn't uh, use the investment opportunity that you probably might have had. Exactly. Are there any other uh, cases that you wish you had invested? Uh, Yeah, I looked at Skype very early on and
1: they uh, uh, already wanted uh, a two-digit valuation. And I told them if you're below two digits I invest right away.
0: <laughs> but they never called me back. So <laughs> <Yeah>. too bad. <laughs> yeah. All these descriptions, uh you seem to have a very, very good uh feeling and eye for when the timing is right and about the potential of a of a tech company. Do do you when you evaluate them, do you have a very specific like Excel sheet or anything where you do your rating or is this more based on your experience and also gut feeling that comes to an overall conclusion afterwards.
1: Yeah, I sometimes wish I had this uh, Excel sheet, but I'm not <laughs> a very structured nor analytical person. So it's, uh, it's uh, all experience and gut feeling and, you know, being doing, doing
0: it for a long time. And I think uh, that turned out pretty well so far. So far it works, yes, I can live. <laughs> Mobileye was also your first Israeli uh, investment. How did you end up investing in Israel?
1: Oh, there was a poor coincidence. The Mobili guys, the founders, were traveling on a on a ferry boat from Italy to Greece um, uh, with their mobile home, and my brother had the mobile home next to it. And they started talking to each other, and my um, brother recommended to them to uh, come to Switzerland and uh, and show me the
0: uh, the idea, which they did, and I uh, immediately invested. Cool. Uh, again, great story with the little coincidences that the world has uh, laid out for us. Yes. <laughs> from your perspective, what can Switzerland, as a startup ecosystem, learn from Israel in that regard?
1: So, uh, I don't think uh, I, uh, I'm uh, I'm at the right place to give recommendations, but uh, um, I, I can tell you the differences. And uh, one of the uh, well, one of the differences is that. Uh, in Switzerland, our talents have um, been hired away by large companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Credit Suisse, uh, UBS, uh, Nestle, Novartis, World Health Organization. We have so many very large companies here that pay very high salaries to people uh, directly after university uh, that uh, the whole notion of being an entrepreneur has not such a big sexiness I would say in Switzerland as it has in, the, in Israel. In Israel there's is, of course no such large companies at least no headquarters mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and being an entrepreneur is on top of the mind of all the students and, and that's what they strive for and that's what they look forward to. So, um, so of course naturally you get the best talents uh, working on startups which um, in Switzerland uh, wouldn't be the case. Do you think that comes from role models or where does that it's come It's role from? models, it's education, it's uh, cultural. Um, I, I think there's a whole, you know, there's also the army that plays a, a strong role in Israel. Absolutely. Um, young people in the army in Israel uh, get, you know, to lead um in, in life and death uh, situations they get to lead when they're 18 years old they get to lead four ten twenty people in in very dangerous situations so they really become leadership
0: skills way earlier than people in switzerland who get leadership skills and they also have a very strong focus on technology and cyber defense in the army absolutely they have this
1: uh, unit uh, 8200 that is uh, dedicated to uh, technology And within that, they have even another more uh, highly specialized unit called the Talp And many of the startups come out of those two units.
0: What do you think, on the other hand, uh, Israel could learn from Switzerland, startup-wise?
1: So, um, well, what we have in Switzerland startup-wise is we have very good technologies, very good patents, very good universities. Um, We have a pretty good accessible government uh, we have a, a very uh, stable uh system for um a legal system so it really protects your rights uh we have more or less sensible tax system um we had this problem in Zurich but i think it's uh, kind of solved now um but uh so there there is advantages in Switzerland. I think that there is a reason that now the whole world is looking to move their blockchain companies to Switzerland. Uh, so that's good. Um, what we are missing a little bit is uh is uh CEOs that have the courage to to really do crazy things. In in what regard? Crazy things? Yeah, in, in the regard of finding a unicorn, huh? Basically there is no unicorns in Switzerland. Um there is uh, you know, number one unicorn country today is China, not the US anymore. And uh, and Israel, a country half the size of Switzerland, has uh, half
0: a dozen unicorns, whereas Switzerland has zero. I think there's also a, a big difference in how startups actually perceive a market. In Switzerland, most of the startups, they want to start in Switzerland and don't really think how to go international from day one. While this seems to be a bit different in, in Israel, do you also think that this is a, a reason why there are more unicorns in Israel.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. In Switzerland, you can make a business uh, out of Swiss customers because there's so so much money around. In Israel, there's no way. I mean, there's absolutely no way to even think about it to make a business out of just the Israeli market. So Israeli startups uh, think, um, you know, Europe, US or China right away at the
0: start. You also mentioned crypto and blockchain as technology. Uh, you are pretty bullish on, on that technology and also involved in the crypto finance conference, for example. Where do you see the future of uh, the blockchain technology, but also crypto assets in general?
1: So I think crypto um, currencies and uh, blockchain technologies are um, going to change the world as we know it. It's going to be a very uh, large um uh, move and change, uh, similar to the internet, Um, only started, you know, the paper was written 10 years ago, Uh, the industry started maybe 5 years ago, Uh, so it will take some time, Um, people tend to forget uh, the credit card was invented 30 years ago, but only started to become used about 5 to 10 years ago. Uh, largely used so or widely used and uh, uh, so it took more than 20 years until it it took off and I expect uh, the same to be true for uh, blockchain technology is gonna take 10 to 20 years to really take off so we are in the very beginning Um, I'm uh, uh, I frankly don't know which you know projects and which technologies and which companies will win the game um, I wish I did, but uh, I, you know the only thing I can do is watch from very close, and that's one of the reasons, or the reason actually, I invested uh, or co-started the crypto finance conference with my friends is to be very close to the market and to be uh, listening and looking and 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 rub shoulders with the guys who
0: are working in that field. Absolutely, I think there's a very interesting future ahead of us in in that regard. I totally agree. <laughs> Uh, To conclude this episode, uh, I would like to ask you about your favorite tools and gadgets. Is there anything that comes to mind when you have to choose your favorite gadget or tool that you use on a regular basis? Too many to mention, probably. (laughs) But I would say my favorite,
1: I think that is uh, totally underserved, is that I hate keys. Mm -hmm. And I try to install everywhere that I can uh, electronic uh, keys to open doors. So, my house um, is completely controlled by phone. My car can open by phone, and um, several of my companies that i'm uh, invested in the doors uh, locks have been replaced by locks that are uh, that you can open by phone and the advantage of that is of course, you can send out the keys by email right. and you can delete keys by email as I told you before i'm not very structured, not very um, bit chaotic. So, whenever somebody gives me t- 10 keys to a house, uh, within
0: one year, there will be only one key left and I wouldn't have a clue who has the other nine. So, I see that th- there's a certain pre-good condition for startups that want to get investment from you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. So, I'm invested
1: in one of those
0: uh,
1: companies uh, called Unikey or Cable, and they produce uh, uh,
0: these electronic keys in, uh, in, uh, in Florida. Fantastic. And my last question, you mentioned that you are reading a lot. Are there any resources like books, blogs, or podcasts that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: Yeah, so I would say my main uh, lecture for the last uh, five years been, uh, has been TechCrunch. Um, I also look at Crunchbase. I look at uh, Mashable, Wired, um, this, kind of,
0: uh, this kind of blogs. Fantastic. Daniel, it has been an honor to listen to your thoughts and hear your insights. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. And we'll see you again in the next episode when we talk about early stage fundraising. be a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Swisspreneur. If you have any feedback or points we can improve, please let us know and send us an email to info at Swisspreneur.com. If you liked what you just heard, Please make sure to follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter at Swisspreneur.org. See you next time.